Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Hi, Dr. Shelley Harrell. I'm so excited to have you here. And I, I want to give you a funny story about how I, I heard you speak. I heard you speak at the UCLA IP&B conference several years ago on the interpersonal neurobiology of culture and diversity. And it was a really complicated conference in many ways because I had several colleagues of color that wanted to come to the conference. And they said, but we're not going to go because there are no people of color on the speaking panels. <laughs> and so <clears throat> on the back end, we kind of spoke up and said, you got to make some changes to that panel. You can't have a conference on that. And um, you were a, a bright light in the middle of a, a really potent conference with a lot of provocation. And, um, and so that stuck with me. And that's why I reached out to you to be to interview you. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you did. I appreciate it. And just happy to hear of your work and this Sidewalk Talk project. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I don't want to give you the introduction. I would like for you to sort of educate us on what got you started? What do you do? And what got you started? You know, share a little bit of that vulnerable first start. Yes, yes. Well, I, I am a psychologist. Um, I, you know, focus on in my work, culture and diversity, um, and with a real commitment to making what we do in terms of psychological services, um, more inclusive, more relevant, more appropriate, less um, biased, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and so, that, so that we do can be disseminated in a way that can be received and helpful mm-hmm. um, to others, both at the individual level, so individual distress, as well at the relational and collective level. So mm-hmm. I believe that psychology has the potential to impact not just individual lives, but our collective lives. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of those levels of analysis are related to each other, who we are you know, internally, our, our awareness, what's in our field of awareness, our beliefs, our biases, all of those things impact our relationships and how we relate to people. And that impacts then you know, how we are in the world and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the kinds of, of things that, that get enacted um, both positively and unfortunately negatively mm. in our world. So, so I believe in the power of this work. Um, but you know, uh, go in, in graduate school, I was in graduate school in the 80s, there was like nothing. <laughs> you know, I think the first book on multicultural, or I think at that time it was called Minority Mental Health, or something like that, <laughs> came out in 1982. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, but I, this was, this was like, into graduate school, very, very interested. Um, and that kind of grew out of my life. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, um, in an in a, uh, African-American neighborhood um, uh, in, in um, sort of the center of, of Detroit. 
And, um, but I went to a private school in the suburbs of Detroit and took a bus out there every day, went to a very wealthy private school. And so being in these really spaces and the, the numerous both micro and macro aggressions that I experienced from childhood um, on uh, really sensitized me to um, diversity issues. Mm. Um, and it, it kind of lit a fire that, you know, something needs to be done about, yeah. about this um, yeah. on a number of number of levels. Um, I grew up during the civil rights movement, the civil unrest in Detroit, Michigan mm. in the mid 60s was right in my community. Um, there's still buildings burned down um, on on a street a couple blocks from me that since, you know, 67, 68 have not been uh, repaired. Wow. And and so the, the collective sort of level of analysis, what happens when we ignore and exclude and dismiss and marginalize people? Um, I, I feel very committed to that level of analysis as well. So both my, my own personal experiences um, and some of those, uh, not all of those have been negative. Um, I had a very healing experience in fourth grade at a, at a private school that I, that I was at um, where a little boy called me the N-word and, mm. and it was very hurtful to me. I actually told the teacher and the teacher uh, reported it to the, to the headmaster and headmistress. And they acted on this. And this was probably late 60s, early 70s, early 70s, this would have been. And it turns out the headmaster and headmistress were Holocaust survivors. Uh -huh. And so they had a significant commitment to not having any kind of ism in their school. Mm -hmm. And so I also learned early that people who did not look like me could uh, attend to my, my feelings and my concerns and my needs and be responsive. So it was this mix in these, in these environments I was in of both very painful and hurtful and exclusionary experience, very othering experiences, as well as some healing and connecting experiences. And so that has also given me the, the fire to say this can be different. You know, yeah. people can respond in ways that are humanizing and, and, and inclusive. So that's a very long, long answer to your question. I think it's an, I think it's an important <laughs> answer to the question because, you know, one of the things that I admired in hearing you and, and for, for folks that are listening, I, I do think it's worth going to your personal website. There's some really important documentation. I love some of the, you have some, some pieces, certainly excerpts from books you've written, but there's some, some actual cont almost um, uh, information that's laid out in, visually in a way where you can kind of understand the different pillars of context. And, mm -hmm. and what, what I think you do well is you, you help us identify all these different contexts in, with, in which bias operates and in which we are sort of interacting with each other and maybe not fully aware of the full range of contexts that we need to be thinking about. And I feel like by you sharing that story, right. you're kind of giving us the larger context of you, <laughs> you know, and what shapes you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, I can't say, uh, Dr. Harrell, that I knew all that was going to happen when I started Sidewalk Talk. Its inspiration came out of an, a, a just sort of outrage at the result of the Trayvon Martin case. That's really what ultimately engaged this project. And for me, I didn't feel like I was educated enough in social justice. So I thought it would be important for me to just sit on a sidewalk and keep my mouth shut and just listen. And that that was the right way for me to protest. Um, 
but but along the way, there have been some positives and negatives, right? That I've been informed by context, and I really like your feedback on it. Number one, listening like this is really great for improving implicit bias, right? Because we listen yeah. to so yes. many different Absolutely. kinds of people. Absolutely. Um, but number two, boy, can you bring some pretty crappy saviorism into the picture, right? Which it, to me, I mean, it sounds like my internet's low. Saviorism comes into the picture, which is another right. manifestation of power. And so I guess I wanted to ask your advice for all of our listeners. How can we be better listeners and indict and open ourselves to these different implicit biases that might come up for us in a way that's contemplative, kind, that is resourcing for us so that we continue to do the work? Yes, yes. And um, I, am, I am sorry for the noise um, <laughs> outside the window, of course, the time we're going to do the interview is the time that the trucks decide to. You know to what? Leave. I interviewed Rick Hansen last week and he had a, like a construction crew outside of his house. So exactly. you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, kind of to get back to your question, I think, you know, one of the things that, that we have to sort of really kind of hold is the, the, the simultaneity of these different levels of both identity and um, just kind of human existence. Uh, and really, I always think about this really old quote um, by uh, Cluckholm and Murray, who are anthropologists, and um, I'm gonna paraphrase it. And, and the quote goes something like this, we are simultaneously like all others, like no others, and like some others. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, we have trouble holding all of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we will, we will sort of go into a universality, we are all the same, colorblindness, um, you know, which renders others invisible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when someone says to me something like, well, I don't see you as black, I don't see you as African-American, I'm like, well, what do you see, you know? And that sort of gives the message that I am not, that, that you are not willing to hear all of my experience, you are not take in my lived experience in its entirety that you want to kind of leave a part of. And so same time, that piece of we are like all others is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. We do need to transcend difference. We do need to be able to connect to our shared humanity, to this human journey we're all on that involves struggles and vulnerabilities and, 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 and triumphs as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so holding those kind of three um, dimensions simultaneously holding our common humanity. Also, you know, the, the, we are like no others, the uniqueness, the absolute uniqueness of every single human being on the planet that we cannot, you know, fall into overgeneralizing mm-hmm. that we, we must see the uniqueness of each person's story. Right. Um, at, and then there's that third piece. And that's where we get kind of tripped up, which is, we are like some others, mm-hmm. which is our groupness. And that's where difference comes in. And that's where, you know, we, we are, our, our separateness um, in some ways gets uh, highlighted. Mm. You know? So group differences show up in culture, show up in ways that groups are treated differently in society, um, shows yeah. up in historical events, historical traumas, um, uh, collective traumas that we bring into current micro relationships and what we carry. Our group, our groupness shows up in various ways. You know, we need, we need connectedness. We need similarity. We need to look at someone else and say, oh, you know, you get me, you get my, my lived experience. And, and that is healing and helpful. And we need those spaces where 
we can exhale, you know, where we're not um, defended and and concerned about being um, uh, rendered invisible or or being dehumanized in some way. So those group spaces are so important, but we have trouble with groupness, you know. Um, and and the other end of groupness, of course, is how we pathologize, marginalize, stigmatize. And, and the fundamental issue is dehumanize people who are not not like us. So that 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 dynamic mm-hmm. is is there in the groupness as well. So all three of these levels we need to hold simultaneously, both in terms of their potential for connecting us, mm-hmm. as well as their p- potential for dividing us. Um, and again, I go back to what I said at at all levels of analysis, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's the 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 intrapersonal. Um, manifestations, the interpersonal, right? Those micro encounters we have where, you know, we're, we're interacting with someone and something gets said and all kinds of activation happens and all of the, the differences just begin to, to kind of flow into the space between us, yeah. um, as well as on the, the societal level where all of these things manifest in terms, unfortunately, of social injustices, historical traumas, genocide, slavery, colonization, et cetera, that, that um, have, have severely harmed us as, as, as a planet and as a people, a collective people, um, in terms of our, our potential to really, you know, kind of do, do well yeah. <laughs> for each other and, yeah. and for the world. So I, I, I'd like to start with that because the, the challenge of, of intergroup or intercultural relationships and listening is is the challenge of holding those three things simultaneously and not kind of just being in the you know we are all the same mode or or focusing so much on our differences that we we aren't able to connect meaningfully in terms of our shared humanity so so that's that's sort of the the foundation i think you know another piece that that um, sort of feeds into that is is that difference is hard. Whether we're talking about uh, an, you know, a couple, I, in my practice, I'm, I'm a therapist as well. In my practice, I, I specialize in seeing couples. Now, so I have this work that I do. You do, you do too. Okay. So I have this work that I do that is sort of, you know, um, uh, diversity work, anti-racism work. My research has been looking at racism-related stress. It's been looking at you know, making our interventions more culturally competent, um, more, more um, working with people on cultural humility. And, and, you know, but to me, those are just different levels of analysis because ultimately in relationships, we're trying to balance the me and the we. We're trying to balance the, the individual and, and our relationship. We're trying to manage our differences with somebody and form a unit and, and sustain and strengthen this unit. Um, when we have differences and that relational level of analysis is, is uh, not so different from social and societal and macro systemic levels of analysis. Um, uh, and, and of course, there's more complexities at, at increasingly um, complex levels. But um, we as a, as, a, as a, you know, kind of human species, we, we have trouble with differences. We react physiologically to different, different racial faces. Um, there's all kinds of research just on our basic um, challenges uh, with difference. So I think another important thing for those of us who, who value these, these um, uh, kinds of, of uh, encounters where we want to, to connect across differences, 
uh, really need to do some some internal work to to interrogate how how am I dealing with how do I respond to difference right you know what what are the ways that I react to difference and I think there's some some fundamental ways that are normative um, that you know we're all going to do something with anxiety at different states. Um, and and so about you know we we some sometimes we deny difference you know um, minimize the difference in some way. Uh, sometimes we devalue the other, you know, in attempt to feel okay and and manage our own anxiety. Distancing is another um, sort of very common reaction to to difference. And distancing can happen, um, you know, certainly physically. We choose to live apart very often. We choose to live with others who who look like ourselves. A, a, a psychologist that I have a lot of respect for, Beverly Daniel Tatum, wrote a book called Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? Mm-hmm. You know. And, and, you know, it's really about, um, you know, that, that need we have for affirmation that's so important in belonging and sense of connectedness, mm-hmm. but also how we can protect ourselves. Um, there's a protective function that, that it serves as, as well. And we need to realize when are, when are we distancing? Um, and, and distancing happens uh, emotionally. I think about pity, you know, and you mentioned the word saviorism um, earlier when we were talking. And um, I think of pity as an emotionally distancing um, uh, uh, phenomena that, that when, we're, when we're in a place of pity, we're putting ourselves you know, so apart from the other, mm. the other so to speak, and, and, and looking down on them. And pity is kind of a condescending way of distancing. Another yeah. um, psychologist that I, I just love her work Lillian Comos Diaz, uh, right. apologist syndrome, where another way we distance from difference is it's so fascinating, it's so interesting. We put people sort of on this little exhibit to be, you know, observed and analyzed, and 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 you know that's very distancing. It's very objectifying. We're not, you know, connecting human to human, soul to soul, heart to heart. Where we're seeing the other as fascinating and, and interesting, and as a museum object almost. So I think these 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 are you know ways that that are actually very normative you know so what we have to become sensitized to is um, tuning into uh, our own reactive difference and yeah. what happens and what where difference starting to emerge do we get defensive and need to defend our our values and say, but I'm not racist or I'm not prejudiced. That's not my value system. And do we get stuck in that defensiveness? You yeah. know, are we distancing? Are we kind of denying and minimizing? We're all the same. It's all good. You know, yeah. um, what, what are, and are we devaluing? You know, what are we, what are we doing? And, and so that, that pull to both um, tolerate the, the coexistence of the sameness and differentness and all others, no others, some others, as well as tuning into our own reactivity to difference, which is human and natural. It's not a sin, but if we're going to have meaningful interactions across differences, we need to be aware of, of, our, of our own reactivity. So I'm going to reflect back what you just said, and then I'm going okay. to ask a question, <laughs> because I think that I, there are some bullet points that I want to highlight that you just said, because I think they're so important. And I'm noticing in my own body, I'm like, oh, I do that. I do that too. <laughs> 
And um, as do I, I think we all, you know, we all do. And I think what I've developed is a certain kind of resilience so that I can say that without swimming in shame, right? That's been the most important part of the work because if my shame takes over, then that's distancing too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So you said, look, we, we physiologically do react to difference. Um, we have a hard time with difference and it comes up by the way we might devalue someone distance from them by try to say we are all just one by decreasing the idea that there's even any difference at all, um, by pitying someone and by objectifying them by kind of, you know, putting them on a, like they're in a Petri dish and we're examining (laughs) it. And then you said, and so what we need to do to overcome this, to create, and I, I share this um, ideal that I think the evolution of our species is going to be about how do we move from that me to that we so that we're holding the self and the other, and that, that that's the way our brain needs to evolve for the planet to survive, frankly. Um, what I want to ask you about, how do we, how do we begin to change the brain and the body and the nervous system's reaction to difference? Because it's, I had this, um, uh, just a quick story, Shelly, on vacation this year, I have two sons and one I of them, two. you do, <laughs> mine are 18 months apart and I'm, I'm a fiery woman. So they really annoy the crap out of me sometimes. <laughs> right. Um, on vacation, one of them sent me this email, um, prior to, he went ahead to stay with grandma and grandpa who are foreign and he sent me an email about Wonder Woman and sort of picking on Wonder Woman. And so when I showed up, I said, hey, can I have a talk with you about that email? Like, you're like a white dude. You have like a gazillion superheroes and I have one. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, what was that about? Because it actually really hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. And we had this whole conversation, my 10-year-old, about implicit bias. And he immediately Mm -hmm. had all the reactions. He says, are you telling me that I'm sexist? Right? And I said, well, I'm not saying that you're sexist, but I think that maybe your brain has been shaped to sort of say that the male superheroes are just the real deal and the female superheroes aren't. And that's called implicit bias. And so we talked about it for a long time and his response to me was this, oh my God, mama, this is a real problem, what you're saying. And most people, when you try to talk to them about this stuff, they're going to feel like you're accusing them of something. You've got to figure out a simpler way to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I'm a 10-year-old. So I guess I wanted to find out how can we begin to work this inside of ourselves in a meaningful way? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is um, there's, you know, we've got we've to increase our tolerance for discomfort mm. and not bail. You know, we have, to, we have to be willing to sustain engagement with, with, um, difference, (laughs) you know, um, we have to be willing to sustain engagement with, with others, um, with, with the, the feelings that come up in ourselves to sustain engagement with those long enough to breathe through them, Mm. you know, and step back and understand what's going on, give ourselves some compassion, as you talked about with the shame, being able to now, you know, uh, acknowledge it and, and not, not necessarily become uh, so immersed in it that it prevents you from connecting. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's those in, in some ways starting at that, that basic sort of individual level of what's happening with me. And let me be more aware of that. Mm-hmm. And um, using that as a foundation uh, to, to 
get to a place where we can then engage the work of challenging some of these biases um, that are part of, you know, um, this kind of system of, of, of uh, structural or systemic oppression at, in multiple dimensions, whether we're talking gender, um, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, immigration status, et cetera. We do, we, we um, the, the sort of individual and relational forms of, of oppression, interpersonal, intrapersonal, um, build up and contribute um, and sustain and collude with uh, the, the maintenance of the, the status quo of systemic oppression and, and um, uh, institutionalized um, isms mm-hmm. such that we see differences, like you mentioned, like all the superheroes are, well, not all, the vast majority of superheroes are male. Right. And white. And white. And white. Or green um, sometimes. Right. Well, yeah, they will vary in, in, in colors, but they're often not brown. That's right. <laughs> they may be blue. They may be green. <laughs> but brown is, is, is not too common. Um, so, so, you know, that's it. That's where we see these systemic differences right. by gender, by race, by ethnicity, you know, um, whether we're looking at, at uh, economics, um, uh, education, health outcomes is something obviously I pay a lot of attention mm-hmm. to. You know, there are disparities. That's and right. so, you know, the, the, the micro of our interactions and what we choose to allow into our field of awareness and pay attention to in ourselves, in our interactions with people in society, mm-hmm. um, show up in, in, you know, how society operates. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think, you know, the, the all levels of analysis are important to attend to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think the act of, you know, working with one's own uh, process <laughs> enough to be able to engage and attune with what's going on with another and sustain that engagement mm-hmm. in the act of listening mm-hmm. is powerful mm-hmm. because it serves as a building block for healing things at higher levels of analysis, mm-hmm. right? So, so when people disengage and don't um, uh, sustain engagement long enough to really hear the whole story of another, you know, we often listen for part stories or we listen to what fits in our already open files in our brain, you know, and we have to sustain engagement long enough to maybe open a new file and not just put the information in the old files and where it fits with what we already think. And, and that, that involves intentionality and Mm -hmm. sort of purposeful checking in with oneself, being attuned to, to the other, and then being aware at that kind of sociopolitical level of how external, historical, current sociopolitical factors are, are you know, kind of omnipresent mm-hmm. um, in, in all of the other levels of analysis. Right. So, so uh, again, it's holding, holding a bunch of stuff simultaneously and moving back and forth mm-hmm. um, through, you know, individual, relational, societal, macro, and how all of those interact with each other. So, you know, the act of listening is listening to all of those levels of analysis. Yeah. It's it's listening, you know, intrapersonally, it's listening interpersonally, and it's listening sociopolitically and and in terms of, of those dynamics as well. 
Beautiful. And you've repeated that three-step intra, inter, sociopolitical twice now. And so I'm really going to take note of that. I'm aware that I've taken sort of the, the allotted amount of time that you've given us. So I'm going to just close with this two parting questions that I ask every single person that we interview. Okay. Um, if you had a wish for the impact that Sidewalk could have on the world, what would it be? And what advice in general do you have for our volunteers in making that wish come true? Okay, so um, a wish for Sidewalk Talk would be um, that it grows beyond the sidewalk, that I think it's an amazing, amazing project um, that uh, has, has so much potential for giving people a space to connect across differences, and which is an act of social justice. Mm. Um, but that those spaces need to extend uh, into many, many places, you know, in, in our, in our kind of social, um, social world. Uh, so my wish would be, um, you know, that, 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 that can happen mm-hmm. and, and that these, these in some ways revolutionary acts of really listening to each other and connecting, attuning across differences, which is a, a revolutionary act because mm-hmm. we, you know, particularly people who, who are not personally impacted, mm-hmm. um, you know, negatively by, um, uh, you know, those various isms, you know, have a choice. They can kind of go about, about your lives and not attend to these things. And, you know, the day-to-day is not significantly impacted. So, so it, it is a choice to engage. Um, and, and it's a revolutionary act to mm-hmm. engage. Uh, to do something different than what our, our normal status quo is. So mm-hmm. I would hope that that those revolutionary acts of engaging across difference in meaningful ways and really listening can expand beyond the sidewalk and using using this this as as a model. Mm. Thank you. And I feel like you've given us the advice in this whole interview, just in terms of holding the larger context and continuing to have the resilience to look at how we might be moving away from leaning into the conversation, both intra, inter, and sociopolitically. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Absolutely. I feel so good to have had you on. I know I've been, I've been stalking you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you, you were persistent. <laughs> you have been here and just really a lot of, a lot of props to you for, for your project and, and the power of that and, um, you know, let it, let it spread. Well, and to, and to give props to broaden the context to all the other people, because we have a group of diverse women that are running this thing now with 2,500 volunteers in 14 cities and four, or 40 cities and 14 countries. So the thank you goes to not just me. <laughs> it's yeah. not my project yeah. anymore, clearly. Well, well, well collective, collective thank you for the energy that, yeah. that, that is out there for, for this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people absolutely, fundamentally, want to connect with others. And yeah. so, so it's also, you know, um, opening an opportunity that most, most of us wish, wish for. Yeah. Uh, and just have, have trouble um, doing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much for the time. And thank you. If you guys want to check out, it's Dr. Shelley Harrell. She's a, a professor at Pepperdine, but um, your, your personal website has tons of great material under the uh, printable section. So it's drsherryharrell.com. So go yeah. check it out. Well, it's, um, uh, what is it? Shelly Harrell. 
I still do it. I do it. That's okay. That's okay. It's It's all good. good. ShellyHarrellPhD.com. Great. Shelly. Uh, HarrellPhD.com. And I told Shelly that I was going to call her Sherry. And she said that her, uh, the, 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 the reverend who married her called her Sherry and Shelly sometimes. <laughs> but you know what? You're not, you're not paying me and you had to pay him. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good rest of your day. And thank you so, so much. <laughs> <laughs>